Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to kick it over first this week to our regular panelist, Spartan Grown. Hey, Jack. Thank you, everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. And um, if you don't do the Instagram, you can always shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with all of your cannabis growing questions. I'm excited for this episode. I'm looking forward to it as well, and I'll pass it next to Dr. MJ. Uh, hey, guys. Yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from uh, CocoForCannabis.com and uh, Dr. MJ Coco YouTube channel. And I am yeah, excited to be back with the panel and have a special guest this week, so this should be fun. Happy to have you back as well. And uh, next up, we've got Brandon Rust. What's going on, everybody? Brandon Rust here. For anybody who's not familiar with me, you can find all my content at Instagram or on Instagram at Rust, R-U-S-T dot Brandon. You can also check out Bokashi Earthworks at BokashiEarthworks.com. You make fertilizers, microbes, soil amendments, seeds, all kinds of good stuff. Happy to have you back. And just a reminder, as I'm doing it right now, my YouTube was uh, kind of glitching out there for a second. But everybody go on and click over to the live chat if you want to see all the messages and uh, not have anything filtered out by Instagram or YouTube algorithm, I should say. And next up, we've got our first Matthew of this evening, Matthew Gates. If he's with us, Matthew, you might be on mute. We're not quite ready yet. Well, since Matthew Gates did just jump in uh, right as the show was starting, he might still be getting set up. So I'll take the moment to go ahead and introduce our guest for this week, Matthew Chacal. Thank you. We uh, got a message from one of our longtime listeners. We have a listener out there, Kettle on Smoke, good dude. And uh, ATG Acres vouched for them. And they said that uh, they actually shared with me your results at the Emerald Cup. I believe it is this year for the solventless category. It, it looks like you took second place and fifth place. And so maybe we'll just start off a little bit there. And uh, you could go ahead and talk about your background and the fact that you're a licensed cultivator at this point and entering into those bigger competitions and, and placing very high with lots and lots of entries. And maybe just share a little bit about that experience and uh, what you entered. Yeah, so a um, little background on me. Um... I uh, moved to Humboldt about 20 years ago, 2003. It's actually this August. It'll be 20 years in Humboldt County. And I uh, started a series of little grows, indoor home grows, things like that. And eventually um, was able to uh, build it into enough to uh, get a property. Um, times changed, went wreck. Um, and, um, and as times changed more, became a hash maker as well as a cultivator. Um, so that's where things lie currently. Um, yes, so... Um, Emerald Cup this year. That was really exciting and awesome. They were really kind to us. Um, and um, I ended up taking down um, first and uh, I mean, sorry, second, second and uh, fifth place. Uh, second place was papaya. It's a cut I got from the, uh, the guys at uh, Straight Organics. Um, just a straight up old school, tasty papaya cut. Um, you know, just grown really nicely in living soil here in Salmon Creek at my farm. And um, the same thing with the uh, the, the fifth place um, uh, award winner, uh, lemon sour diesel, sour diesel lemon, however you want to call it. Everyone calls it something different. Um, and that's a cut I got from the source nursery a few years ago. And I uh, was sort of at, the, at a time when 
Um, we weren't sure, a lot of people weren't sure what were washers, what weren't washers. And I just sort of had to wash all my material and it ended up just being a, a delightful washer, nice and light colored. Um, um, it, it, uh, it batters up real, real moist and has that look that's really trending right now. People like, um, and yeah, yeah, again, super fortunate. Um, but, um, this, this region, this place that I have here, Salmon Creek, Humboldt County is, um, one of the greatest places on the planet to grow, um, cannabis in the sun. So, I, so I think that was the real, you know, the real, yeah. Internationally recognized. Um, so yeah. Do you have any experience um, so, with the Salmon Creek Big Bud as uh, you've been out there for about 20 years? And I know that was fairly notorious. It's made its way into a few major crosses. And uh, I'm curious okay. if you had any firsthand experience with that one. So I've been at this spot for eight years. And um, and back in the day, yes, I had, I had um, when I was like a little home, home grower, I experimented with some um, some Salmon Creek Big Bud a couple times and um had pretty good results with it um you know it was a nice reliable strain was a good was a good strain nice terps and um hardy you know so it's a good one we don't really see much more of that anymore the times have changed quite a bit as far as demand um you might see some some you know it might be deep in the lineage of some of the uh, popular strains currently but um it's not you know i'm i'm Everything that I everything that I grow is is really directed towards uh, being washed um, and made into live rosin, um, and in a lot of cases decarbed then into um, liquid rosin, so so that people can make carts with it. Um, so I'm looking for specific things. I'm looking for fruity terps. Um, I'm looking for gassy terps. I'm looking for high potency. You know, that's what people like. It's just sort of the way it goes. So. Um, just sort of stay relevant and pick things that the market likes. Um, and that's, that's worked out really well for me. Yeah. It seems like uh, going back to the big bud thing and how it kind of fell out of flavor was it wasn't the most potent. It was more of a big yielder from a lot of accounts, but um, I think the most notable lineage that it popped up in modern times was in the original granddaddy purple. And that group has kind of gone through some shifts and changes here and there, but uh, the original lineage from what I understand was Urkel crossed to Big Bud and they've changed the story a little bit over the years and also lost some genetics and, you know, relaunched things and things like that here and there. But that's definitely one of the ones that I would think uh, was more notable for that strain in particular. But the reason that people prefer Urkel, even still to this day, I think is it was a little bit more potent, a little better tasting, uh, might not have yielded as well, might have been a little bit more difficult to grow. But the purists and the people that really kind of get super into it, I think, would choose the Urkel over the GDP. And then there's others out there that argue that and Granddaddy Perp uh, or uh, Grape Ape are all the same thing, which I personally disagree with. But it's uh, and 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 people might say the same thing about the Nepal. The Nepal was the one that I had back in the day when I first moved out here, um, and there was a great story behind it about a, a one cut being you know sold to the hell's angels for a hundred thousand dollars or something like that and then it was sort of in time over time we started to see urkel and, and granddaddy you know even pop up so i kind of wonder i kind of wonder where where it all was commingled uh purple wise uh, uh purple wise yeah <laughs> yeah not so dog has an interesting take on the mendo perps being kind of like a direct lineage of an afghani that you kind of inherited from a old school og and humble i might be mischaracterizing it a little bit but that's from what i remember kind of how that story went and that was another one of the big earlier purples that had a name on it that wasn't just like a, a land race that somebody got their hands on 
uh, and it kind of gained popularity in that area in particular, which is definitely known for cultivation through the last several decades historically. Anybody on the panel, Spartan, Doc, um, Matthew, if you're here, or Brandon, have any questions uh, for Matthew here? And or maybe we could check the chat, see if they've got any uh, questions that uh, are popping up. No, it's just certain nostalgia. I didn't see I, any I really. Moved up there um, just before Matthew moved up there, basically. I moved out of Humboldt County in 2003. Um, oh, wow. I moved up there for a couple of years, though. But it, yeah, good times. Great place to grow cannabis. I want to take a second because I heard his voice, uh, and so he's with us now, to introduce Matthew Gates, our IPM specialist and just general badass dude. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Um, basically, all I wanted to let people know is if you don't know about me already, you can check me out at Sentinel.com or on my Sentinel YouTube channel. Got some cool videos coming out, including a short video about a Skunk Magazine article that just came out about um, how resistant testing is important in cannabis. We might talk about that today, perhaps, if that comes up, but... Um, since we're talking about lineages and things like that. The other thing is that I have that Growcast uh, collaboration, Pestapalooza, 29th on Saturday in San Diego. Dr. Coco will be there. Um, I think Jack is trying to be there too. So if you want to meet those guys, you can hang out with him there. And also on the 30th, I'll be in LA uh, giving the same Pestapalooza workshop uh, deal. We'll talk about identification of pests and that kind of a thing. But check it out at pestapalooza.com. I'll put it in the chat too. So to uh, Mr. Shakal, I'm probably mispronouncing it, even though you just told me how to say it before the show. But uh, are you experiencing any pests at this point in the season? Shakal, 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 Shakal. You remember the old the, uh, Method Man song, Takal? You can remember it that way. Takal. There we go. There you um, go. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I'm thinking yeah, like call, like I... an eagle. Fucking eagles always got me fucked up. And, and Mendo <laughs> Doe. Yeah. Kaka. Yeah, that's the wrong direction. Shakal. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So. Um, I deal, I deal with um, mostly aphids are, are the biggest annoying problem that I have the hardest time with. Um, um, and I'm on my shit. <laughs> so um, uh, aphids are the, pro the biggest problem. I, I don't really see, I don't really see too much else other than um, russet mites. Um, um, all pretty, pretty fairly easy to control for me for the most part, but the aphids you, are kind of the one that how do you I struggle with the best. Um, I use I use um, some soaps and some agricultural oil sometimes if it gets really bad, but mostly just soap. I like the Chester Boone's product. Um, I don't have to worry about like an entry reentry period or any of like worried about you know I I actually splashed some in my eye the other day. I washed it out and I was fine. You know what I mean? It's like nice to use products like that. Um, so I go pretty heavy with the Chester Boone's or you know I like that one because it's got a lower application rate than the safer product that's similar. Um, and then I use the Biomarone products. Um, I use the Regalia and then I mix that alternating with uh, Venerate or Grandivo. And those products work pretty, pretty well for me. Um, um, I tend to go with the Regalia a little later than probably um, they say to, but I, I, don't, I don't find any, any residual or any sort of like effect. Um, in the smoke, I stay away from sulfur because I'm washing uh, everything that I grow. So that's one really important thing. And I, I stop with the soap, um, um, you know, at the typical time, like a couple, three weeks into flowering or something like that. Um, um, so basically those things. And then when I have things in the greenhouse, I lean a little more on um, uh, lace wings and um, 
and ladybugs ladybugs are like a little bit harder to get there's like a whole shortage thing going on with ladybugs right now i don't fully understand it but um yeah i like to use them in sort of like more confined spaces like when up in the greenhouse when i'm in the in propagation areas and things like that um but yeah pretty simple um on the ipm i guess and um i i do i should say that i lean pretty heavily on my um my earthworm tea my compost tea um I'm, I'm i'm laying down compost tea weekly and it's pretty widely varied and um um you know that obviously helps with the plants immunity and and um i brew some bacillus in there some different things that 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 just help with uh, soil health keep things from getting out of control pest wise so in terms of the uh, non like living pests or i guess technically molds and mildews and stuff are, are living but thinking towards more the end of the season um i had a question just thinking when is the end of season typically for you? And does a percentage of crop uh, being outdoor greenhouse just end up going to mold or mildew, like even if it's a one to 5% or something like that, or does the IPM slash genetics and harvest time allow you to kind of negate that as much as you can? Um, so that's, yeah, so that varies widely. So the the botrytis question, the, the downy and powdery mildew question, I would say downy and powdery mildew can be controlled 100% with good IPM, but uh, botrytis, I feel as an out as a full sun outdoor grower, um, I find that that is up to mother nature. Um, usually two weeks after the first heavy rain, uh, botrytis sets in and, and lately it's been earlier and earlier. Um, this last year we had some significant rains in September that did cause some significant dead loss, but um, the team's watching for it. I'm watching for it. And I, I do, and I do start using some, if I do start seeing problems and so, okay, so here's another portion of it. Um, if, if it does rain early, um, like in September or the, if it rains like the whole first week of October, which is terrible and does happen, I'll start laying down some, um, a product called zero tall. Um, which is like pyracetic acid and uh, hydrogen peroxide. I'm sure you guys already know. We're familiar um, with that. Yeah, yeah. I really like that product. Um, I don't find that the hydrogen peroxide alone does as good a job as the hydrogen peroxide with the pyracetic acid. I think it's pyracetic acid. And um, um, so I start laying that down when the rains yeah. stop. I, you know, also with that, I'm I'm physically drying off the plants. I have blowers and I'm going through the entire garden, blowing it off and shaking the plants. And, you know, that gets maddening because it sort of stops raining and I start that process and then it, I get done with it and then it starts raining again, but it's just the joy of being a full sun outdoor grower in Humboldt County, you know? Um, so do you do yeah, like so any, I would say leaf removal or, or like excessive topping on fatter buds to try and give yourself a better chance <laughs> at, you know, reducing the, uh, botrytis essentially <coughs> risk. I don't mess with, I don't mess with the buds much at all. Um, but I do, I do defoliate significantly. It just, it's always the thing about growing here. And like this is it's every year is, is different in the finishing season, especially, you know, I mean, through the summer, I mean, it might, we get hot spells. It's always really dry. Uh, smoky weather might come in earlier, later, start supplementing some calcium, magnesium, a little extra in those conditions. You know, we're just sort of like waiting for it to come. And every year is, is just really different. So um, um, I, I'm constantly checking, constantly looking at the weather and um, trying, to, trying to make decisions um, before they need to be made a little bit. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always a moving goalpost. 
Got to stay on top do, of your game for sure. Do you do a lot of uh, fresh frozen or are you drying all that product? Everything is fresh frozen. Okay. Yeah. So, I, the, my next question is what does yeah. your dry look like? I mean, it's got to be a big room. <laughs> what, what does what look like? You're well, drying. Fresh frozen, they're just going to a bag, right? So if it's fresh oh, frozen, it'd be oh, like the drying, yeah, yeah. No, for the fresh frozen, I have uh, two two Conex freezer shipping containers. One of them's a eight by forty, and the other one's a twenty by forty. So or, I'm sorry, eight by eight by twenty, um, and I fill those completely at the end nice. of the season. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a whole shitload of fresh grow uh, between ten and fifteen thousand pounds. Depending how many plants in the year and you know depending on the dead loss so i have um i have uh six about 650 and large pots throughout the yard that you can see kind of some of behind me um there's those vary between 100 and 200 gallon pots just just um you know this place is always in the process of sort of building so it's like um uh, as years progress and the pots need filled with fresh soil i sort of upgrade them so like between 100 and 200 gallon pots and um uh there's yeah about 650 of those and then i have um i have six black box greenhouses or light depth greenhouses whatever you black box is kind of an archaic term but uh black box uh greenhouses and i have six of those that i'm flipping tarps on and those are like about 12 by 75 each and those a total out i think there's like about 1500 smaller plants in those those greenhouses and that'll get pulled here in about um a month and then i'll, I'll replug that I do my depths a little bit later because I like to get the nice part of the season. Um, I always find that I do better when I, when I start, the, when I start the tarp sometime in early June, um, instead of trying to go for like, you know, even three, three, a lot of people try for the third round of depths, but I just find you start losing up to like 25 or 30% if you start, start too early or late. That's a good uh, thing to bring up. And another kind of question I had for you is, down south uh, we've got about three of us in the san diego area and we got a lot of rain and cold and overcast weather in the first probably six months or so of this year first half and being a more full sun and even greenhouse grower i'm curious how the early season was up there for you this year and uh did that slow you down or have any setbacks in the early half of this season yeah so um it it did um it took a while for the the um you know the nighttime temperatures to come up i mean the diurnal shift is really what affects, uh, I think, the plant metabolism in a big way out here. Um, just it getting too cold in the nighttime to the point where it can't, the soil can't warm up enough to where things start happening um, quickly enough in the day for it to really matter. So it sort slows the metabolism and, and everything works much slower. Um, so yeah, that does happen. Um, it was kind of a kind of a pain to get the amendments to compost. It was kind of a pain. When I put things out um, in the beginning of June, I have everything in my greenhouse for up until that point in pots and up potting and all that sort of thing, pest control up there. And then then things come down. I shoot for the first of June, uh, basic mostly because of my proximity to the coast. I'm only 20 miles as the crow flies to the um, to the ocean. So I get much cooler temperatures anyways. June can be real foggy in the mornings, but this year the nighttime temperatures were just so low um, and it continued on and it actually um, caused some of my, I had one strain fully go, go into flowering. Um, that, was a, that was a pain in the butt. I've never seen that. I've never had a problem worrying, like wondering if plants are going to flowering around the solstice like I did this year. Um, and it was like, 
just because of like super cloudy and cold, cold conditions. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a struggle. I, I did, you know, I like to stick to June 1st. Um, you know, things are in the greenhouse. They're, they're getting the nighttime temperatures, but they're also being supplemented with light. Um, so, you know, at that point, I, you know, I really like to get things out, but I can, again, you know, sort of make the decision to keep things in a little longer. Um, but at a certain point, things just got to get outside and, and, um, that's where I was at this year. Um, does your greenhouse have like a grow light style setup or is it more just lights to keep them in the veg cycle? Yeah, it's just for propagation. Yeah. Just to keep them vegging. So they run, uh, they run from like four in the morning until eight 30 and then until nine o'clock or something at, from like four in the afternoon, five in the afternoon until nine o'clock. Yeah. So you're really relying predominant, like almost all on the strength of the sun and the, the lights that you're using are just to keep them in the right part of the cycle while you're getting them to the right sizes and taking clones and things like that. So uh, some people, I think that might be a foreign concept when they think of a greenhouse with lights, they're like, oh, the lights are going to make the plants kind of grow more. And it's more just to, you know, prevent them from going to flower, which especially in a season like this one, where it's been so cloudy is pretty pivotal. And even, uh, you know, can't be controlled for sometimes when you put them out close to the solstice and it just uh, triggers. Sometimes I think that might be like the early flowering stuff maybe, or not quite an auto flower, but like that stuff's like right on the verge where a lot of outdoor growers, I think get a better, uh, a lot of indoor guys, we just go from 18.6 to 12.12. So we don't really know when that transition happens. So it's like, well, yeah, it's a, a you know a photo period because it can stay in veg while it's under 18. But if it would have been under 16 or 15 or 14, it might've gone. And I think that's where those cloudy days, some of those trains that are a little more on that borderline can uh, start to express themselves. It's just interesting yes. that the days would do it. And that, do you know what your PPFD is under the supplemental lights when it's like dark out, but you're running just light? Like how much power you're putting to those lights? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, they're like but they're old much. school. They, no, I mean I'm, they're old school um, high pressure sodiums. Okay. <laughs> like they're just hung super high. I mean, it's um, yeah, just it to, gives some. Yeah. Light, but you're not really hitting them with dense enough light to be like growing under that. Yeah, not really. No, it's really just to keep them from flowering. But I like um, I do notice that certain strains are, are way more, way more sensitive to photo period fluctuations. And I actually bought a strain this year from purple city genetics called pineapple burst. And it, it just completely went into flowering and it was under the same, it was in the, in the, in the supplemental light greenhouse. And it, it, um, yeah, it was in the same conditions as all the plants next to it. And none of the, those plants, none of those plants went into flowering. You know, so. pineapple stuff is really fast. Like the pineapple upside down cake is like a 50 something day finisher. And I'm not sure if uh, the pineapple that wow is working with isn't the same. That is, that is quick. But yeah, that I think it might be a pineapple genetic related thing that they're really fast finishers and maybe even like a early trigger or, you know, uh, not quite auto flower, but a lot closer than a traditional photo period. Yeah. Yeah. I have some thoughts as a, uh, I'm sure a lot of other home growers out there who would dream to someday make this their full-time kind of living and career and get into the legal market. We've got a cultivator who's with us right now, Brandon Rust, who was a San Diego grower, but moved to Oklahoma before getting into the legal market. So I'm curious if you could share kind of at the beginning, you gave us the, uh, you know, long story short, but what was the process like going from, you know, being that home grower and then getting a property, you know, having the dream and saying like, I'm going to 
go through all these applications and permits and like, how did you actually do it? Did you have to have lawyers and teams and millions and millions of dollars or what was the uh, process like? Can I just ask Matthew, okay. is camera the other way or your phone over? We're getting just this sort of vertical image of you. And that's it. There we go. Is that better? That's All much right. better. Much better. <laughs> yeah, no it's a, a great view in the background, yeah, too. No worries. Yeah, it is. God, yeah, yeah I, I thought I figured this would be nice. Um, okay, so that's a lot of things. Okay, I'll start from the beginning. Um, I would say uh, from the beginning of that question, uh, you said, how did it start? So I came here as a student. I was, uh, I was going to school at HSU um, for environmental science with an emphasis in water quality and hazardous waste. And I was growing in my closet. So I was basically sleeping like with the lights, you know, shining out of the corners in my apartment in Arcata. Um, that's uh, Northern, Northern Humboldt for those who don't know. And uh, so I did that for a little bit. When I first moved to Arcade, I had a job. That was my first, that was my, that was my last um, official non-cannabis job in 2003. I worked as a laborer on the freshwater school and I decided that wasn't really for me. And that while I was in school, I was going to, you know, like, you know, take a minor in, um, in cannabis growing. And I sort of experimented and things just sort of fell in place for me. And I was able to turn, you know, one little closet into a, a little house, you know, turn that, you know, a little, a uh, little eight lighter, six lighter, I think it was actually. And then, then a 12 lighter and then might as well rent another house. And then, um, and you know, there was a problem in Arcata with housing because of people like me, but um, it was <laughs> eventually squashed and we all left and went, went to McKinleyville. And then, <laughs> so um, once, um, you know, once that whole scene was tapped, it was just, it was time to look for a property and again, it just sort of fell into place, just like all my cannabis life things happens, you know, sort of seem to. And, um, you know, I found a, a place out in, um, out on Ammon Ridge, uh, up Titlow Hill Road, sort of notorious area for cannabis growing in Humboldt. And um, I was up there for about five years. Um, I, I, I put a tank up there and, um, you know, cleared some trees and, you know, built a little greenhouse with a cabin attached to it and um some 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 depths some uh hippie hoops we, we call them you know i still have hippie hoops i love hippie hoops they're the best they're the best thing ever for depping um in full sun and um i did that for about five years and i was going to school at the same time and eventually it was sort of like i was at my last semester and they started telling us what we were going to make as environmental scientists and i was sort of out i was out at that point um on the school thing because i kind of had a career that i created myself um and at the time it was all like um to clubs you know um we would um you know for outdoor we, we'd all keep a book of 215s and a note from whatever dispensary gave them to us i had a, a great place in in um in hollywood and uh it was pretty funny you know you get a few like celebrities and things you know like <laughs> just like their script in your book and you know so we did that whole thing um driving driving weed down to la and selling it and um, and that was my, that was my thing for a long time. Um, I was, you know, in the indoor days, I was growing um, what a lot of people, you know, started, they called it all kinds of things, but it was, it was called headband at one point. It was called private reserve OG at one point. It was, it was just the OG that everybody wanted. Um, there was one point that I was selling that for 4,500 a pound. Um, so I had a little place in McKinleyville where I was doing that. And I was, had my place in uh, Willow Creek and, between, you know, throwing down huge runs at that house in McKinleyville and, and doing the summer thing out in Willow Creek, I was able to buy a much nicer property, the one that I'm on currently here in, in Southern Humboldt. Um, 
so I did that for a few years with the whole 215, the whole 215 um, move, you know, book of scripts, just selling it to dispensaries. Um, it was a, it was the best time that I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm so lucky that's, to have You could stack it. like 99 plants on a single property with, you know, however many patients. I think it was like 12 per patient. So uh, Humboldt was always a canopy county. So you could, you could do 100 square feet per script. Um, and there wasn't really a, there wasn't really a limit as long as you had this, this, this note from a dispensary. Um, that's crazy. That's even better than, uh, yeah. yeah. So I did that until, until, you know, I did that all the way through the time when, you know, people started talking, speaking of legalization brought the price down. It was really sad and unfortunate, you know, we're talking like five, four or $500 a pound. And then that sort of, um, that sort of undulated for a couple of years leading up to, to, um, to wreck. And, uh, I was just told by my attorneys that it was best that I go for, that I go for legalization. Um, and so I did that because I always find that when you pay people, pay people a lot of money for their opinions that you should always listen to them. So I did that. And so as far as the process goes, I was in on the first round of Humboldt County permitting, um, so it was, it was made really easy for us. Um, they, they made a lot of accommodations and, and, um, and helped us. Um, so I actually did that all on my own. Um, I used um, a local resource consulting company that um, called Timberland Resources, shout out Timberland Resources. Um, and they, um, they helped me do all the, the paperwork as far as the scientific um, studies that needed done um, and, you know, things I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't write up myself, biological assessments, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I plugged away at the county permitting process, which is one that's still, I mean, other than, I mean, I ran a couple marathons in 2009, but I would say that this was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever, just getting through the county was so hard. Um, I don't know if they've, I think a lot of it was that they were figuring stuff out, um, like you know they hadn't even figured out how to issue like the insurance companies hadn't even issued figured out how to issue surety bonds at this point that the state was requiring just for example um so the state was figuring out they were um i like the, the um uh, they were flying the plane as they were building it so to speak and that's that's just that was a great descriptor everything was a moving goalpost every every 30 seconds they would turn around and tell you that you needed another three to ten thousand dollar report um, and give you some unreasonable, you know, deadline to do so. And you just sort of have to figure it out as far as financially getting through this process. I think that every, they, we were all made to think that I think that the rhetoric was that you will have to come up with millions of dollars immediately to be able to do this. And in reality, we were able to chip out, chip away at it. And, you know, we have, we might, you know, you may have had two or three seasons, um, before any of this would actually all be paid for. Um, and that really was the case um, for me, um, staying afloat through all of the madness um, depended 100% on having manufacturing. Um, if I wouldn't have done that, I would not, I wouldn't be here today at all. I would have gone the way of many of my comrades, um, just having, having control over, over, over my product and not having to, I mean, I still wait on people to get paid, but um being able to turn it into something else. I knew that was going to be important from the very beginning. And that's sort of why I, you know, as at the same time of doing the legal farm, I was going the manufacturing route 
that's sort of another another whole story to the, part of this story but so you feel um, like if you stayed if you would have just focused on just the growing aspect you would have struggled worse and that the manufacturing kind it's of not even a again. question 50 percent of the cultivators have shut down this year in california did not renew their licenses so i mean he's one of the 50 percent that survived yeah that makes sense why a lot of the msos try to come in right from the get and be as vertically you know integrated as possible and be in control of every set every part of the process it makes sense yeah. because otherwise everybody wants a piece of the pie and the price goes up up and up and you can't compete with anybody else Your well initially that wasn't supposed to be legal they didn't want anyone to have ownership of a farm a distribution and a dispensary or delivery service they wanted it to be separate operations so you know mom and pop could have their grow then mom and pop could have their distribution and then mom and pop could have their delivery service but what happened is every single Terrible. big it was a bad idea that they did that you know because you can operate a vertically integrated business although it is a little bit more uh, difficult to keep track of a lot of you know your your payrolls and your taxes and this and that and you know all your all of your business management stuff but that's the way to go man being able to I agree the whole thing with california like you had to have somebody you had to give your product to somebody else usually on the cuff dude and a, a motherfucker if they're like oh we're, we're bankrupt we can't pay you you know that motherfucker might have just lost their whole crop i mean i i know several people who had their whole crop uh with a distributor and that and they went out of business and then they fucking lost every, lost everything dude Part of me thinks that some of those distributors were buying up a lot of shit and then intentionally just bankrupting because they were friends or coworkers mm -hmm. with these other farms. So I'm, I'm sure there's a non-zero number of that. Legitimate yeah. fraud that was happening. I mean, Burner is under multiple lawsuits. I won't get into it, but Junkie is suing him and so are several other of his people that he's worked with in the past because he's trying to bring this like, I, I don't want to get too, too into it, but he's bringing old school tactics into the legal market, which don't fly because people will fight you with the pen. They're not going to fight you in the streets. Um, farmers, it's not the old school anymore. Farmers didn't know how to and didn't want to have to defend themselves. Exactly. Um, we were we were used to being able to. The best way to say it is, um, we were we were used to being able to collect our money uh, uh, other means. Let's just say by other means. Yeah. And dude. then we came into this money you go kick their door in back in the day you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so these guys figured out oh there's no these guys don't use contracts or know their way around them or have any interest in using them we can yeah. use them as the bank and that's what they've that's what i mean most of these guys have done and a lot of them are you know feeling frosty there's a lot there's a lot of people who are in trouble right now for using farmers as the bank to build their company, Heritage Mendocino. There's like there's like a lot of people. Speedy Weedy right under a huge uh, Speedy Weedy is in a lot of trouble. So they, it's just it's it's there's punitive damages realize, though. It's gonna come back around because essentially yeah, they, they pay realize, three to nine times the amount of the money. A few people settle with them and maybe they stole a hundred thousand and they pay them back seventy or sixty or whatever. But the people that didn't settle are gonna get a class action lawsuit and shut down those companies that are fucking people. So ultimately yeah, it will, they, will sort itself out. Just, or they go bankrupt in one state and go to another state. I mean, it's just, I, I don't fully, uh, yeah, it's, it, they just played, they played us. I mean, I, I got used by a few companies early on, you know, and it was it, what they, they didn't, they, they never didn't pay me, but they, one company took a year and a half to pay me, you know? So I'm like, I'm like getting ready to chop the next year and they're starting to pay me out. You know I mean? Farmers can't exist that way. We can't exist that way. So yeah, we needed to defend ourselves. We needed to be smarter, and um, and we just, you know, I I, I did it too. I mean, we we a lot of us did it. I Something think the I biggest want to touch thing, on, 
you said yeah. earlier that you had a minor in cannabis, which I think was a joke or be, you're being facetious. But yes. now there are actual cannabis colleges. There's Oaksterdam University, true. regular colleges like UC Irvine or whatever have cannabis classes. So I just wanted to clarify that, like when you said that, that was more of a tongue in cheek statement because there are yes. people out there that listen in Canada. We have Canadian listeners that are like going to college and getting their minors in cannabis and getting their degrees in cannabis and things like that, which is a whole, I guess, separate can of worms. But it is uh, interesting that that has become a thing. And, and when you were doing, it probably wasn't actually a thing, even though you were at like Humboldt State University, which you would think would be the place where they'd have stuff like that happening. Although there was related things like biology or environmental stuff that you could study. It great wasn't. Great botany program. Yeah, great yeah. botany program. <laughs> I took botany classes yeah. at HSU, nice. so I know that. Thanks. Yeah. My friend went to, I, I visit them, they played lacrosse there. And I just got to say, HSU, if you haven't been, like it's worth just going to the university just to walk around, like the Redwood Forest National Park, like the, the, university it's beautiful at least in my opinion from an ohio boy it's a uh, humboldt is a different different world up there arcade yeah. is beautiful and the people are awesome even like if you're in a greyhound there'll be like an 80 year old man going to the bathroom in the bus and then it comes out smelling like skunk it's just like you don't awesome. see that where i'm from <laughs> it's a uh, pretty crazy <laughs> uh, yeah arcade is funny for sure interesting place for sure i'm curious if uh has anybody seen any questions from the chat or if we have any uh more questions from any of the panelists that might have uh popped up throughout our discussion so far not really that i've seen but if One you do if you do. sort of a little local history but man when i was up there houses in arcada were getting rented out and converted to grows like left and right in 2001 2002 um and you say like that that's started and then every it, it got cut off and everybody moved to McKinleyville. What happened? What, what did the DA sort of shift his tune or was it? Is there the, city of Ar- the city of Arcade, the city of Arcata imposed a tax on okay. your, on your, on your um, uh, PG&E bill, your electric bill. So if you were over some percentage, you paid an extra amount and it made it, made it less affordable or less profitable okay. to grow there and then also it was it, there was a, it was a climate of get out of town it definitely was i i you know um had an interaction I where I was there i mean I, yeah I, I could yeah. feel that and being really sympathetic to the pro cannabis side i could also see sort of the complaints that some other homeowners had and stuff like that when properties would get converted next door to them and you know, there and was... the city needed housing for the university. That was the that was the big crux of every. That was the whole issue. Yeah. Um, they, they needed more housing for the for the school. Which they're they, tiny houses you know, too. They're not like big massive know. things. They're pretty right. small relatively. Absolutely. I would say for considering where it's at. Yep. I think it's. Yep. I think it's important to highlight a little bit of history too. Um, like for me at least. Uh, coming out of San Diego, we had our, you know, our indoors, nobody was going crazy big. Uh, the people that were in Northern California, they were, their indoors were always a lot bigger. They were running diesel generators. And it's like, that's where we would go to get work when we, when we ran out, like we would go get indoors because we could go get large packs from Northern California where we couldn't go get like, you know, 30 or 40 locally you know we could go get a selection we could go get you know four 10 packs or five 10 packs of different stuff always in northern california uh and they were kind of known northern california was known for having good indoor uh, yeah. it wasn't until around like 2000 because camp 2007 2008 when everybody started throwing up uh depths and 
really blowing out like Blue Dream and Diesel, and everybody was, you know, slanging Sour D to the East Coast. But it was, dude, it was known for the good quality indoor before it ever was like people, you know, going out, uh, getting it, it was a know. cycle, Brandon, because it was outdoor first. Outdoor and first, absolutely. Camp, when I was there, everybody campaign was against marijuana planting or propagation. That's camp. what I thought too. Camp like, came and they raided all of the outdoor, forcing people inside, which yeah. makes no sense really in California, but it happened and it ultimately taught a bunch of people how to be fucking savage ass growers inside and yeah. avoid detection doing things like using diesel generators being off the grid and not having to pay the taxes even here in san diego i still grow and i have a small home grow and i get like the 100 to 200 percent usage of my neighbors because i'm in like a tiny house little community and so i get charged even more than that percentage of my use they tax you like on top of that they're like oh you're using so much so we're gonna encourage you to use less encourage you to be more efficient and so they charge the shit out of you it's like way higher and especially like if you do the peak hour versus non-peak hour thing there's different plans and stuff but yeah electricity gets crazy but back to the weed side of things even though that is weed related i'm curious if uh matthew you have any favorite strains either currently or historically and if you're smoking tonight with us uh what are you talking on Okay, one thing really quick, though, just to comment about the diesel grows. I think, um, actually, no, a, a big part of that was also the diesel spills that were going on. They were finding red dye in, in you know, in endangered water, endangered water systems, you know, sensitive regions and stuff like that. And it was killing animals and fish. And, and the county went after a lot of that stuff with fish and game, you know, for that reason. Favorite strains. Um, I decided not to dab or smoke during the interview just because I wanted to be able to <laughs> think on my feet here. But um, I right now I'm smoking on a little jar of banana guava. Or I'm sorry, gua, a guava banana number five that I pheno hunted last year. Um, I got the seeds from Six Star Seeds. Um, he's he's an awesome breeder and uh, makes things for you know for washing basically and uh, I got the guava nana from him the seeds last year he just shot them to me for you know for free just to try them out and um yeah I, I you know hunted those and uh, guava nana number five seemed like it was the best one so I washed a bunch of that and um so I'm puffing on that I got a jar of uh what did I just finish oh I just finished a jar of mango lossy which is a a wash mix that I made out of mimosa, fresh frozen and straw guava, fresh frozen straw guava is like kind of a, one of like the gassy ones. I got this one from this, uh, Skittles guys. Um, I couldn't tell you the cross on it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I had a few kilos of each and, um, I usually do washes of like 30, 30, 25 to 30 kilos. Um, so I had like, you know, whatever it is, 10 of 10 of mimosa and 15 of, um, I mean, uh, 10 of most and 15 of straw guava and I threw them together and I actually just had this thought I was like oh, I should call this mango lossy and um um it actually after after the wash and the press and the batter I was like holy shit like um this actually has mango terps so that's one of my that's one of my things right now that I've really liked and then um I always have a bucket of this papaya that I grew last year that I, I got the cut from um the straight organic guys and um you know that's it's just it's addictive. <laughs> They're the str eight straight, straight yeah. organic. Yep. Yeah, they, yeah. They have killer stuff. And uh papaya has been killer for a long ass time. I like the high, I like the flavor. One, both first and second two in Missouri at the at the um at the cup that I was judging. Uh like nice. last weekend. It was two different papaya crosses that one first and second. It's a real cheat code for uh 
it's a real cheat code for um, contests. And the reason I think that it part, part of it is, is like not every judge is going to clean their dab rig in between every, <laughs> every dab. So like once that papaya dab hits, like they're tasting papaya for the next two or three dabs. So and it's loud and bright. It's just like, it's so distinct. That's a neat way. That's a neat, that's actually kind of fun though. I like that you say it that way. Cause I bet there's a lot to that, especially in like taste tests of all kinds of things, right? You got to make it, that's just like the age old Pepsi Coca-Cola taste test, right? Like people buy more Coca-Cola allegedly because it's more drinkable, but the Pepsi does better because in that small sample, you're like, br- like Jack says, bright hits yeah. your tongue and you're like, whoa, but yeah. uh, maybe a little rich. But yeah, no, I love that kind of stuff. Most in one ounce isn't necessarily going to be what you prefer the most after a hundred ounces of it, and whether that's cannabis or cola. Makes True. sense, right? But yeah, yeah, a good, great way to be like uh, strident and have people go, whoa, this is definitely not what I was tasting. Yeah. Before. It it's also just good on its own, out of like competition. In... What's that? Oh, I was just saying it's also just good on its own, outside competition. Yeah, but yeah, only having something that stands out. good variety, out. man. I was really surprised. Uh, it was really cool because the cup out there in the competition, it was all, you know, mom and pop businesses, but because of the legislation out in Missouri, because it was like a $25,000 to get a license and it's just a lot of, so you're not even guaranteed. So all of the businesses are just all underground. So there's a huge underground community and they're all just, you know, doing it, doing it regular, you know, doing traditional market and it's, it was awesome to see that. I loved it. Well, with so many people, I guess that means misery does love company. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> I actually got it Tough on time. Crowd. Tough crowd. <laughs> Boo this man. I was laughing muted, so uh, you might be able to go back and watch. Taking a bong hit. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> that was no, clever, that's, though. That's I think interesting. That probably went over some of our listeners' heads. Oh, I don't think so. uh but um but you know actually uh on that point um that's probably not a great place to go but i am curious what people think because we're just talking about vertical integration versus horizontal and uh obviously people have very strong emotions about whether people should quote unquote should be allowed to grow like should we have maximal commercial do we have stratification of what what tiers you're allowed to to be in whether you can put those together or whether they have to be separate or you know is it is it better to just have a bunch of people and let them in or is it better to have like a very controlled stratified system where there's not very many players this is kind of my market baby right because you know being out here in oklahoma and having over six thousand grows and over 25 hundred dispensaries and probably another 3,500 processors. What happens typically is it causes economic growth and prosperity. Even if people don't stay in business, they, they, it still helps with the economic development. Right. And what happens with the market is markets mature. And what happens is there's always going to be, you know, somebody who is thinking about their wallet and will, and will, you know, be a, co- a cost conscious consumer, but the people who are able to produce really good quality products consistently, those are the people that have been able to, you know, build brands and make names. And those people are able to stay in business. And it's kind of like the good players kind of 
win when there's an open market and the bad players kind of just stop stop playing. And one thing, one thing that I noticed though, I'll just I'll put this is that uh, you know because Jack made a good point as an American free market baby, but if you make it really free, you end up getting little oligopolies don't you because it's free but that means there's nothing against people like there is collaborating there is things that are against them already in the antitrust laws you can't have price fixing and sell things at incredible losses for extended periods of time even though it's not often prosecuted it is illegal you can look into the uh, ftc you can look into the sec and things like this there are laws and there are regulations that are already in place that could be enacted onto cannabis businesses as they are businesses like any other business essentially it's a money-making mechanism so i think the free market can sort itself out like we've seen a little bit in oklahoma and in brandon's point just point out jack that all of those things are basically checks against the free market free market regulations that prevent the free market from being fully free because if it's fully free it doesn't work very well and I, i guess the like we recognize there are some places that we need to sort of prevent monopolies from just forming because that's not in everybody's interest, right? That you need some of that antitrust regulation and these other kinds of regulation. And in lots of different industries, and cannabis is certainly going to be one of them, there are different regulations that are, are suitable for that specific regulation in order for it to function well as an economic unit. Um, I, I certainly don't think like plant counts and other things like that are going to be required for the regulation for sort of the cannabis market, but just having no restrictions whatsoever, I think would be equally problematic. Yeah. Cause then you can just come in and bankroll it. And then there's no, none of this, none of this nice competition that we want, or I guess some people want uh, between like smaller groups. Cause I agree that, uh, you know, a planned economy historically is not done so hot. <laughs> Unless yeah, well, under right, incredible strain. A free market economy hasn't done so hot either. So it's not that exactly, it's exactly. Somewhere in the middle, it's taking advantage of the, the sort of dynamism of the free market while still being able to pursue social goals that we have that don't just get trampled by. I'd say the Obviously, problem is that the market's not really free because it gets captured by a large corporate. Large exactly. corporate That's comes kind of in. What I'm- and then, to, like you're yeah. saying, the free market no longer becomes free because you get monopolies and oligopolies. They can lobby and That's make what laws. In a freely unregulated free market. People with the most money, when they see a profit-making opportunity, will sweep in and buy all the capital up. Even with regulation, this happens. If you win, but see, also, even if you started small and achieve this greatness, and then you become, you know, bigger, it's within your best interest to like kick the ladder and not let other people get up to you in a zero-sum sort of way. In the same way, I think that the logic of a, like what Brandon was saying, a vertical integration might be superior. But at the same The new new businesses have some opportunity to serve markets that aren't currently being served by like these big businesses if they're not providing the quality or products that people want. So that's where smaller businesses can win out by either producing something newer, better, like a delivery service is better for a lot of people than a dispensary. So people having stuff delivered to their home is going to be better than driving into a shop. And that's just one market. And granted, the you know shop can start having delivery lot. options and things like that. But uh, it and to Brandon's point, like even when people fail, there's like mergers and acquisitions. So like the plumbers got paid, the electricians got paid, the builders got paid. True. So somebody in that economy made money even in a failing business. And then when that business fails, they can sell, yeah, maybe at a loss, 
but some of it gets acquired. Some of those people keep working. Some of that equipment gets put back to use. And so it's not like a total loss, but we're getting super into like the economic side of things, which, I mean, this is a business and we're talking to a few people here that have commercial licenses or, or work very closely with large operations. And so it does come into consideration, like our local economies, our, our local laws, federal laws, state laws, and even going international when it does become federally legal, like there's so many implications that uh, even just dealing with what we have currently in place, it's kind of difficult to uh, nail down exactly the best way of doing things. Because... Yeah, Matt, what's your opinion? On which, on which subject? I know, right? Around a bit. I'll, let, I'll let Jack figure it out since I interrupted him. <laughs> I guess um, we were talking earlier about like, what do you think? Uh, is, is it better to go more like free market and just let everybody have a license? Or is it better to have a certain amount of regulation to, uh, I guess, stem the, let's say, glasshouse farms in California right now uh, is being criticized because they have more um, glasshouses, greenhouses than anybody else in the state. They're producing more tonnage of cannabis than anybody else and they're also selling things at very low prices trying to control and manipulate the market according to some um this is just an observation that many people are making and so that's kind of like the one end and the other end is uh you know more regulation and things like that so yeah so on one on one side um the the biggest the biggest issue we have right here uh when comparing to other markets and things like that is the black market being this elephant in the room at all times. And there's the, the way at least California has set it up, there's no possible way that California is going to compete with this already established bolstering black market. That have to agree. Let's face it, that nobody is enforcing. And I'm not pushing for that. I'm not saying that we want to enforce it at all. All I'm saying is it's not being enforced to the point where there are whole huge meetups and people advertise outwardly on Instagram no one's doing anything and they shouldn't be <laughs> they're called no secret sessions but they're out in the, yeah, in yeah. the public it changes no the market doing anything, plan, anything well, and to put it, numbers so... to it there's 50,000 growers that applied for permits before prop 64 they gave out 5,000 permits roughly of those 5,000 yeah. only 2,500 are still operating so that means that there's 2,500 doing it legal and that i would guess 45,000 of them didn't just close up shop and stop growing so Roughly 45,000 growers out there probably still producing and still making money, whether in California or elsewhere. They're doing great. They're doing better than they would have been if California hadn't put this whole silly little game together. Um, so the, what, the first part of this that I want to what I want to uh, point out is against the black market, California loses. So this entire thing is a joke. Metric is a huge joke. The licensing process is yeah. a huge joke. The only way to make any of this make sense is to give out amnesty licenses to trappers. Just mm -hmm. let people have them. Stop charging for the licensure. De dis like disband completely the DCC and make metric the standalone part of all this that we have to deal with. There shouldn't be enforcement on cannabis the way that it's being enforced in California. If they're not doing this, they're not coming out randomly and ruining our the entire day to, to friggin' vineyards. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, oh, we want to come and inspect. Well, that screws my entire week <laughs> because I have to make sure. Oh, well, you looks can, good they, they, you're gonna... they do do that in agriculture, though. Absolutely. At any time, they can come in and say, Hey, I want to inspect. Okay, so you highlighted that, an organic but... grower who sold it's... organic goods for like years, unregulated, without doing any organic practices as organic just to get more money for it, even though yeah, he's growing so... it all traditional. Yeah, true. So 
I think that you're you're right. There is enforcement, but in in cannabis yeah, in California, right. it is as if we are criminals. The entire thing was oh, set up 100%. As, as if we are criminals. Like banking is completely. I feel like a criminal every time I go to the bank. So it's. I, I mean, too. it's it's. I do sometimes. It's a very. <laughs> it's a very odd. Yeah, it's a very odd, very odd situation. So that's the first part of this that I want to point out to your question. Um, that I think that that amnesty for trappers is the only way to make California and the disbanding of the DCC and the licensure process completely in California is the only way to make A and B make sense. The other part of this is the consumer issue that is focused highly on mids. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, has a lot, it has a lot to do with it already being very expensive by the time it gets to the consumer. They want a good deal. It's just like any other product in that regard. People want to get high, but they want to just pay as much as they as they barely have to, or they want to feel good when they leave, like they ended up with something tasty, whether or not that's, I mean, something extra, whether that's like a four or five months old pre-roll that's probably brown if you bust it open or whatever. Um, So the mids market is real in California and it drives it hard. And so, but the thing is, you're seeing mids companies go out of business left and right. So this whole idea that cannabis can be put into a, a, a corporate framework is a farce. It, it, it just can't be. And every, every time anybody tries to do it, they end up going out of freaking business. Um, and so the, the people that are doing the best, as far as I can tell, because I work extraordinarily hard, insane weeks. I work weekends. I work late nights. I'm making hash in, you know, I'm making hash and I'm running this farm and I'm barely making it <laughs> on an acre with a wash lab. I mean, and so I know trappers are doing wonderfully right now. I know lots of them. They're great people. So, um, so I just would say, you know, it's, it, 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 it the mids market is, um, is I think the biggest, the biggest problem with the second part of what you mentioned, um, the consumer mm-hmm. wanting, wanting a good deal and all, all the taxes and the costs that go into us being able just to be able to operate, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't leave much room for a high quality product. Um, you know, so like for instance, the majority of the business that I've been doing in the last several months, many months is decarb liquid rosin for carts. And that's, you know, it's not very, it's not an easy move to be in retail as a small producer in California because the, 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 uh, the retail game, um, is very complicated to play because they, the corporate entities just waste money on these, on these dispensaries. We want lunches for our crew. We want um, a thousand sample units that we're going to turn around and sell, but we just want them as samples. You know Uh, we want you to be in our shop two times a month, you know, so you're paying somebody like, you know, that, that, you know, that that's local, that like works for a company that you're hiring out somebody, you're, you're giving them a rundown on your products and then they're going in and maybe even mispronouncing your name, not representing your product. You know, it's a very difficult, expensive game to play for, for small time producers. And I was in retail for a while with a, you know, a jar jar of dabs, you know, a fresh press and batter. And um, it just, it got to the point where I couldn't maintain the dispensaries the way they needed to be maintained to, to, uh, to, to um, accommodate, to accommodate them, but to compete against these bigger, uh, these bigger corporate entities that I feel you know, have made it harder for all of us to- oh, and the unregulated like market uh, when, when yeah made- i was gonna say it's a lot like uh uh sorry to talk over but it's very much like um you know you can go and watch like a, a tv series for free on like on some black website right like where you're not really supposed to be able to access it but it's free and people do it like you have to you have to have a certain quality level 
but they make it so difficult to be actually competitive. Like you're saying, I completely agree thing, with you. The word that no one said yet, tax. Well, you Matthew just said it a second oh, ago. Yeah. But tax, when prohibition of alcohol ended, do you know anybody know what the tax on alcohol was for the legal market? No so idea. 1%. 1%. And do you know why they made it 1%? At the beginning, alcohol was 1% tax after prohibition because they wanted to squash right after? the black market. At the federal level, taxes are usually done locally. So it would have been different. In different it was federal because it was a literal mm. amendment to the Constitution. And they had to reamend the Constitution to end the prohibition of alcohol. But right after that, the federal alcohol tax was 1%. They could have state stuff and it was a little bit more. But the goal was, and the reason they did that, was to squash the black market and illicit or unregulated makers of alcohol. So when you have a 1% tax, it's you're barely paying, the producer's barely paying anything, the customer's barely paying anything, they don't notice any difference. In San Diego right now, if I go buy a $100 gram of concentrate, I pay $132 out the door. So there's a 32% tax on products. This is an interesting difference. The reason the alcohol prohibition ended is because prohibition was recognized as dangerous. The prohibition was causing the black market and prohibition ended, the big thrust was to dismantle the black market because the black market was supporting criminal gangs that were destabilizing society. And, and you drink bad alcohol and you go and that's blind. totally different than why cannabis was sort of stopped the, the, the prohibition of cannabis. It wasn't because to eliminate the black market it was never the goal. The goal was, you know, to decriminalize sort of these these activities and to possibly make tax revenue off of them and that's why it's sort of a lot of people ended up carrying on with that um and it's just interesting i haven't really thought about that before but absolutely the goal at the end of prohibition was to dismantle the black market um and that's never been the goal in in cannabis with as much thrust and now there is a direct relation from Colorado and California. I know businesses here that there's direct cartel Mexico connections with finances. Uh, the way that in Colorado, their dispensaries are set up is they get like a ticket for the amount of bank in their vault. And they have some armored cars come by like once every so often, pick up all the cash and then give them a credit to their account. And so a bunch of, you know, out of country or state operators came in with a bunch of cash and said, hey, this is all from our dispensary sales. And essentially had the government launder their money or wash their money for them. So there has been some really crazy shit that has happened in the yeah. unfolding of this. And like you're saying, Doc, they're not really deliberately trying to, uh, with ending the prohibition of cannabis, squash the black market, clearly. Because if they wanted to do that, they would do like, historically we saw with alcohol, all those people that were bootlegging, they had Tommy guns, they had faster cars, they were able to outrun the cops, they were able to outshoot the cops. And the reason is they had all this fucking money and... uh that they doesn't seem to be pay off the cops. That was the real problem. Yeah. Paying off the cops <laughs> and then paying off the politicians and the mayors and like owning control it. Yeah. Stabilizing society, corrupting society from the inside like that. And that was the, the sort of the problem with prohibition. That's why we turned against prohibition because it was creating corruption in society. Now I have this question because I actually have the same sentiment that Matt has, I think, which is that like it is even though it would be a band-aid removal and even though there would be other trade-offs, I think that would have to be considered. One of those trade-offs would also be, uh, you know, this is not against anyone growing at home or that I'm not trying to say that people are incapable, but I brought it up before. Uh, sometimes people apply, in my experience, sometimes people apply things they shouldn't apply to their plants because it gets rid of the pests. And they don't know that it's actually super toxic. This happens a lot. This even happens with people who are supposed to know better. Or they you know, know and don't care. 
or they they're, they're ambivalent the or they're uninformed. The market is dangerous to consumers, right? Like, but see, yeah. So how that's I think the the square that the circle that has to be squared, or however that phrase goes. Yeah. Because I believe how that do you, testing should be dictated by the market. What does I that mean? People, testing... people, when I was in two fifteen, I had I worked at a medical dispensary delivery, and they had we had testing done every month on the products that we picked up. So exactly, at least once a month we had, but and people would pay a little bit more for our stuff in the private market, and we labeled it all organic, and we would go to our uh, best extent to make sure everything was tested for pesticides, molds, mildews, and things like that. But this was very uncommon. All the other delivery services that I would look at, you could just buy an eighth for half the price and it wouldn't have any testing or if it did it would be like a, a screenshot of a test from maybe a year mm. ago that they put on all their pounds so right. i think that people should people should either be able you know people should be able to say i'm not going to buy a product that i don't know was tested and i don't necessarily care who ends up doing it but the product should be tested for sure but it shouldn't it shouldn't be state the state shouldn't have their hands in this that's, portion that's of just it. expecting the customer that's putting too much responsibility on the customer and the customer can't know everything about everything that they're buying and we expect to be able to to interact with products in in our world that aren't going to kill us outright so just like what if a customer doesn't even know what what if we need to test our grapefruit and you don't know that i mean did you did you demand that your grapefruit was tested like it doesn't turn out that it's actually dangerous customers may not even be aware that there's products that might be used on cannabis that could be dangerous for them to, to consume. A lot of customers don't know that. So demanding that the customers have to insist on, on paying more to defend themselves against something that they don't even know is a problem. I, I just see a whole lot of people trying to save money hurting themselves in that scenario. And that's exactly why we sort of set up these testing things in the first place as society to make sure that industry doesn't end up poisoning people to make a quick buck. So I, I agree with you. I agree that I agree with you in that it, it's the one place that the consumer is better off in all of this because the consumer gets screwed in every other way in this entire process, except for this one thing had the testing is beneficial for the consumer. But I mean, I see, yeah, I see, I, I, I see it. There, I see it in it. the trap. I see it in the trap. I see people getting products tested. I see consumers wanting to know that it was tested or wanting to see it. But a, they didn't before uh, the COA. market I mean, existed. Man, when I was in Humboldt, nobody talked about testing. I mean, and that, no. that was only something that existed because consumers have become more educated about what is actually going on in, in cannabis cultivation. And that some of that stuff could harm us. And we learned about that through sort of the legalization process and, and a lot of that stuff coming to light. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think most of this stuff has become worse for consumers, but that, I mean, I think back to what, what I probably was smoking stuff growing with Eagle 20 and other things that, that, Avid, Eagle 20, Floramite. I mean, right. And, like, I mean, we're yeah. just waiting on a list. I didn't know any well, better. You know I, mean? I think some people would argue, <laughs> yeah. like, where are the deaths from cannabis? Even the Eagle 20 stuff, like, where are all the people that are dying? I've seen a few cases of people that were compromised. Those are immune acute system toxicity. Pesticide smoking. toxicity is almost always chronic toxicity that gets you over time. So it, it is bad. And I, I'm yeah. against it. But like we have tainted romaine lettuce that killed five people in the last year. And, you know, 35 more were injured by. Right. So it, yeah, I mean, it's true, that your, food, it's true some... that your food products are are go against way less less high like low, much lower standards than your cannabis does for heavy metals. Even though you probably molds, the average person yeah. may consume a few grams a week or something, you know, whereas you're eating lettuce, however much you're eating lettuce. So I think you could argue that your you know food is less safe for you than cannabis. But I think when this was all being put together, like that mentality wasn't really good enough. So I think that's why 
the state of California really latched in. And, you know, at the time they were pushing the limits of science for this testing. There weren't standards for how this testing was supposed to be done to the point point where, where companies were, companies had to come up with it on their own and then prove their methodology to a private board or that whoever, I don't understand that whole part of it, but I think I got the first part right. Yeah. And also, and I, I certainly agree that, there's a whole bunch of testing that probably doesn't need to be done at all, that doesn't benefit mm-hmm. the consumer at, at all. Um, and there's a whole lot of regulations related to how growers can operate that don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense and ban products that shouldn't be banned and other things like that. I absolutely think that cannabis should be treated like every other crop. Um, but a lot of crops need kind of fairly close inspection to make sure that they're actually safe for the end consumer. Um, and perennial perennial cynic that I am, um, why would I why would I believe anyone that is doing their own testing? Why? <laughs> why would I care? Why would I think that somebody isn't going to be duplicitous? Maybe I have been wrong too many times in my life, but you know, it only has to happen once, right? Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Well, right? I got so E. coli like, from Chipotle, so I know that's why like, oh, I'm <laughs> hyper aware of like getting yeah. you know injured or ill from food. It happens, and it is you know unfortunate for the consumer. It's hard to avoid because you assume these places that have like an A health standard are going to serve you safe food. And so, same with like cannabis. I got mold out of a legal bag that was tested for mold and mildews, but it was like one out of the thousand bags that I've come across from the legal market. Where probably in the illicit market, it was probably maybe you know, one in a hundred or one in 50 or something like that, or, or maybe it wasn't as high. I don't know. It depends. Mold's just a visual, visual inspection thing anyways. And the visual, unless it's got debris on it over like 25% that it doesn't even, it doesn't fail anything anyways. So, you know, it doesn't really protect you when it comes back to mold. And then, well, that's the why I visually inspect it myself now. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crack it open. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I have a little scope. Yeah. I, I have a little jeweler's loop that I like hover around. I like to look at the trichomes anyway. So it's like a dual purpose. I look at the trikes nice. to see like, was this picked early? Was this picked like on time? And my guess, or if it even matters, I'm just curious. Cause if it's going to be yeah. really zippy and uplifting, like real clear trikes that I don't see too often, I'm going to avoid smoking that like right before bed is really the main thing. But also like my wife is hypersensitive to smoking PM. She got really sick one time and yeah. um, Matthew and I tried it. Didn't really impact us much. I had no or, effect that I can tell that yeah, I felt. I didn't, I didn't feel any effect either, but she had a headache for like multiple days and vomit several times. So it is something to be aware of and definitely investigate for. So I have a a kind of change of topic a little bit because being in the area that you're in, I think it's pretty known for this particular old school strain. And a lot of people I think are on the hunt for it with very little success. Some uh, people here and there claim that they've Mm -hmm. got it, but the illustrious, mysterious skunk. Do you have any thoughts on skunky smelling stuff like roadkill, you know, RKS or just skunk spray skunky strains do you have any thoughts or leads on that is it still around humboldt uh because i found some sour diesel up there the last time i went that blew me away i was like this sour doesn't exist anymore and then i found it i was like oh shit you just got to go up to humboldt or santa rosa to get some but thoughts on that's skunk. a good question i haven't i haven't seen any of like the well i mean i, I see skunk crosses once in a while um you know those are those are still around even though a lot of that stuff fell out of fashion more than 10 years ago but I would say it's fallen out of fashion is the biggest, the biggest issue or the reason why you don't see it. Um, I would say, um, but not so much. No, the answer is I don't, I don't really see much skunk. I see skunky things, things crossed with skunk, but, um, not really straight up. I do have an affinity for those older things. I like those, I like those older strains. Um, and when I had romanticized in the early days about doing a cool breeding program, it incorporated a lot of that stuff. Um, 
but yeah, no, the answer is not on no, no on the skunk at this point. Have you ever messed around with breeding? Speaking of, do you uh, even do it as a hobby or passionately? I messed around a little bit in the early days, but um, my hope was that I would be able to build a nice, a cool facility here um, where I'd be able to do all that stuff. And, you know, things kind of tanked before that ever happened. There's so many other, you know, things on the agenda, I'm sure. Just trying to, like you said, keep it afloat. And uh, I think you were smart to go into processing because like we talked about earlier, a lot of the just growers are not renewing the licenses. And uh, I think that you have to diversify and getting a little bit better margins out of the concentrates and things like that and just more control over the quality of your product from start to finish is a big advantage i think that you had there yeah i started out as an ice cream company originally it was um cannabis infused ice cream and um some other fun edibles like a, a little microwave cake um you just throw your own egg and your own oil your, i mean you throw your own egg um, and your own milk in it and it comes with a little packet of medicated um i had all these great ideas early on and um, i think that's California, a really cool idea before you get, you. I wanted to interrupt you to say before I got the chance to, that's, those are really innovative. Yeah, I mean, I know I see you. other people do that, but like, I don't know. I just wanted to say that continue. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, um, it was, it was cool. I, I was, it was a really cool passion project of mine in California changed the regulations and they wouldn't allow us to put anything, any custards, anything, anything that we had to be held at temperature. Um, so that sort of messed things up. And then um, rosin just kind of like happened. Um, and then rosin took off and, um, and it's still, I feel, I think it's the final battleground in California, as far as, um, manufactured products. Um, you know, we've, we've, and I, I just, I don't think the price can do what PHO did to us, um, because of how the, how the material has to be handled and harvested from, from start to finish, um, with BHO, um, quality does not matter much at all i mean for nice there is nice bho i won't talk bad about all bho because there is good bho out there so the those of your listeners that hear that don't think i'm a total jerk but um so there is good bho out there but what most of what most pro processors are doing is using garbage material um molded material you know heavily downy and powdered mildewed uh, material things like that um and um, that you cannot, you can't do that with solventless. You you have to use decent material to end up with nice hash, to end up with nice rosin. Um, and um, so I do think that that rosin just like just happenstance kind of just ended up this way. I mean, it's an incredibly low barrier for entry financially to get into rosin. You know, you get yourself some bags and um, an AC unit with a cool bot and a small room and you get your space, you know, nice low temperature, you get yourself a little press from low temp. Um, you can be making rosin for, you know, 10 G's or something like that if you play your cards right. Um, BHO, you can't do that. You know, the permitting for, for that type of license is also significantly cheaper than BHO and just, you know, all the fire regulation and pods and all the things you have to have to be able to manufacture BHO or it just becomes um, prohibitively expensive to get into that. Um, and I think that, that, yeah, so I think that rosin, rosin just happened for me. And I think it's a great, a great place for all growers to think about going with their products at this point in all markets, because I believe that, um, if, if growers truly do like growers decide to be washers, we can stop worrying about other people washing our material. We can stop worrying about them lying about yields and them not paying us. I mean, it's just that next step that growers I feel need to take, um, at this point. A lot of them were um, taking half. That was the standard for a while. Like if I wash your material, I'll take half. And people were just yeah. accepting that. And like, holy shit, yep. to lose half your product? 
for somebody yeah. else just to do a few hours, a couple hours of elbow grease. Hard ass yeah, work, I mean, but... and hash making is hash. Ma- you know, the detail. It's one of those beauty and simplicity things when it comes to making live rosin. It's it's beautifully simple and beautifully complex at the same time. Um, it's like making a, a perfect French omelet or something. You know, to compare it to food, which I do a lot. Um, and um, on the surface, you take some material, you wash it at cold temperatures, you freeze dry it, you press it. But, you know, what's the temperature of your water? How was that material treated? How was it harvested? What was it grown with? Um, all the way to how, you know, how long did you freeze dry it? Did you over freeze dry it? Did you treat it well once you took it out of the freeze dryer? Did it stay cold? Did it heat up to room temp? How did you store it? Was it in a jar or in a plastic bag? And then how did you press it? You know, how long did you press it? Did it get off the plate quickly enough? Um, you know, what was your ambient temperature, you know, the room sat at while the hash sat out until you collected it. How long did it sit out before you collected it? I mean, there's just so many, there's like a million more details. Do that, you whip you know, it? That, Do you not whip it? Yeah. <clears throat> Do you batter it or not? My personal feeling is that fresh press is an unfinished product. Um, I believe that not cold curing your rosin is kind of like not barrel aging or not, um, you know, um, uh, bottle aging your, your, your wine. Um, I think cold cure is a, it's a fully, that's a full sensory experience. The terpenes are available and you're able to, you know, um, you're able to kind of absorb that experience a lot, a lot more in a more pure manner than with fresh press. Um, I think it's easier to consume. You just kind of swipe out a little chunk fresh press. You got to kind of wait for it to come up to temperature, but don't let it sit out too long. And if it's out too long and it, you know, it starts to batter up. I think that the fresh press market is a very specific group of connoisseurs um, that enjoys that product. And I think the fresh press is the, the purest expression. I mean, it's fresh press. It's just straight off, you know, that's, that's like, you know, how the clarity, like you can look for impurities. I mean, it's a, it's the, it's the, the truest form, I think, other than just six star melt. But, um, but I don't think it's a good consumer product. I don't think it's the way that, that people want to consume. I think people want to open the jar and be blown back. You know, they want their hair blown back by that, by that amazing um, combination of terpenes. And then, um, you know, they want to be able to swoop a little chunk out dab it quickly and use it so um yeah so i, I don't agree know with why, you. why i got not ruin it by having there, it but... sit for a little yeah. too long or yeah. have to baby it in and out of the fridge or freezer or carry a little cooler yeah. around with you if you're gonna go on a you know hour-long trek uh same like a lot of my heady dabbers too, yeah. do i feel the same way as you matt i i feel like uh i feel like it's kind of a funny place right because on the one hand i also agree i feel like that is very desirable and has a lot of um sort of uh quickly degrading traits that you want to that you want to keep around but at the same time that's not necessarily what people want to buy and they want that convenience and that sort of a thing i think that's something that people overlook and uh, they think oh i really like it or this group of elite people quote unquote you know including everyone on this panel people who really talk and care about this stuff you know they might want it but the average person might not which is a kind of a tragedy of the commons right i have a question for you is uh consumption side of things if you make this wonderful product that's so tasty and delicious like six star or fresh press or even the cold cured rosins uh do you go about dabbing them with a cold start do you have a hot start or an e-nail at a certain temperature or do you like an e-rig like a puffco or something similar 
So you're going to think I'm a complete heathen, but I smoke entirely too much hash to, to, uh, to have a glass rig all the time. Um, I use a glass yeah. rig like on a- occasions or if I have something special, but I am, uh, I may go to hell for this, but I'm a Puffco guy. Um, oh, you're a real one. So <laughs> <laughs> I've got, a, I've got two of them, so I can't hate too much. Yeah, I, yeah, me too. And so it's like, um, yeah, it's just, I just, I, that goes right back to, I smoke a lot of hash, man. And I just, I, I can't, I can't constantly be cleaning the slurper or cleaning the bowl. I just have too much time. I just have too, too much time into it. Like once in a while, when I like come home or like, you know, if I have something particularly interesting that I press at the lab or a mix or something, I'll come home and I'll, I'll dab fresh press out of the glass rig. And, um, I enjoy it a lot. It also, I mean, I'm, you know, 41. So the, the glass rig hits me a little harder than it used to also. So, um, I'll look forward to that. Yeah. Dabs can definitely be harsh <laughs> on the lungs. I think if you yeah. take it a little too hot or if it's just a little too terpy, like some terps are more caustic than others. And if it's a high concentrate, it can really like make you cough in an uncomfortably, like almost painful exhale. Even if it's a clean concentrate it's just like that strain produced like limerilla for example has so much limonene and limonene in high concentrations is it stings my nose like i just i like limey i like lemony i like the citrusy stuff but to a point if it is too strong it is like you know dabbing pledge or something or pine salt or something (laughs) you know it's like nobody wants that caustic astringent you know paint stripping quality Um, so there's definitely a point and i think you find that more with like people that are uh doing distillates and then adding terpenes back in and not really uh, sticking to the ratios that we're finding with a plant that you would get when you press it or dry sift it. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm curious if you could just give the people that are listening a little bit of a rundown. What everybody calls their stuff six star, but as somebody who's made my own hash, I'll admit not all of my hash is six star, <laughs> but like, what is the the difference between a six star five, four, three? And I'm sure people could Google it, but like uh, just as a hash person, could, could you give the listeners out there like a rundown of what makes it? So six star is completely bullshit and it like like this shouldn't exist <laughs> as a, a way of classifying things. There's nothing scientific about it. It's um, silly in every regard. I mean, it's, if anything, it's like kind of a marketing thing that hash makers use like, Oh, this is six star. <laughs> There's no way of classifying six star and some hash mic maker might get in your comments and be like, Oh, well I smoke it on a, on a metal screen and I, weigh the whole thing before I smoke it on the metal screen and then I weigh it after I smoke it on the metal screen I just I just don't think there's any way to like do that in a scientific manner that makes sense to me um I I have a background in science so these things bother me um yeah as of now as of now I'm sure there is a way that some amazing hash maker or hash tech guy has figured out um I've heard people just say um you know, uh, when you press your bag, weigh it before, weigh it after, subtract that, get a percentage. And that's what, you know, if you end up with 85% rosin, you've got 85, you know, 85% melt, but that doesn't take into account bag saturation. So I just think that there's, and then there's, there's a window on every press puck where the hash in the center gets stuck in with the, with the parchment, the parchment paper. And when we collect, we don't use any of that, but that's still like, so where does that fall into this melt? category i mean a lot of guys will say flag it out so flag out the hash make a little a little chunk press it in between parchment paper let it get nice and warm i mean like you guys know all this stuff cut it with a tool take your flag dab your flag and then it's then it's just completely based on what you think did it melt as much as you expected it to did it completely melt i mean i i don't even 
And then people say, okay, well, what's left in the banger? But I, the best, the best water hash I've ever smoked still got funky in the banger on, like you still can't reheat it. So it's, um, I don't really know. I don't know how I, I definitely know what to me six star hash is. What's one star? I don't know how everyone. It's just your qualitative assessment then. One star might be like food grade or something like, like um, green doesn't burn doesn't melt green doesn't, doesn't burn, burn leaves like just a lot of particulate a ton of particulate in that bowl i think as you move forward there would be like less and less particulate in that bowl i agree um, with that um but again i think it's really really difficult without some sort of equipment that not every dabber is going to have to to you know assess your your melt category or your star rating whatever you want to call it again i'm sure there's some some genius out there that's figured out something i'm unaware of but from my humble opinion, six stars is sort of a ridiculous thing to call out. I mean, you can flag it out and show a picture of it. And if it's, you know, nice and clear, and if you look really close at it, there's no, there's no particulate. I mean, it's really hard to get all that particulate out of there or not end up with any of that. You kind of need a pretty fresh bag set, nice, the nice light wash, maybe first or second, you just kind of turned it in there, you know, like, um, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult. And then, um, you know, a lot of guys will see more, you'll, you'll end up with more of a, a higher, a higher melt, I think off of more mature, of a more mature, um, trichomes. And I think that's sort of something people, you know, may not really understand is that the, the guys that have the best melt are really getting that off of like 120 through 150, um, um, you know, maybe 90 through 150 or something like that. Um, so less about head size, more about resin maturity. Yeah, so. strain specific resin maturity, and then your ability to keep contaminants out of that hash through the wash process, which is you know where the art where the art of it comes in. I think. I'll, I'll and then whether or not to my stuff has whether contaminants. Or not, yeah, yeah, whether or not to um, uh, air dry or you know freeze dry. If you're going for if you're going for a, the purest, best form of melt, I think you, you know, if you're just going for water hash, I think that air dried is really the way to go. I think a freeze dryer takes away a lot of the amazing qualities that, um, that the hash has to offer in that case, you know. Um, I think air, if air dry was a more like doable process, like if it didn't take up so much space and so much time, I think that we, you would see it in the rec market. Um, but like, personally, I know of one guy out here, uh, that produces it and he, he makes like super small amount of it and it's impossible to get. Is it Nasha or somebody else? No, it's uh air dry or die. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. I know Nasha does Great. some of the more like Frenchy cannoli style stuff. And there's a couple groups that are going with the more old school style hash, but I don't think that many of them are air drying. A lot of them are freeze drying and Something on the thought of that is maybe terpenes that are water soluble that would homogenize in the hash throughout an air dry, like into the leftover material are potentially being sucked out in that little exhaust pipe. Um, because I can smell the terpenes in the water, the esters, the aldehydes, the ketones, the other stuff when I wash certain strains, definitely like you see anthocyanin in the water, it's purple. So it's uh, not going to, sometimes the resin is actually purple, but oftentimes like the water will be purple and then the resin comes out gold. And so there's like weird little oddities like that. And the stuff that I'm smelling in the water, a lot of people like water it back into their plants, abolished farms, I think makes like a Kool-Aid, boiling it down and uh, adding some stuff back into it and infusing it. But um, I definitely think that there's something that is being removed in the water and usually terpenes and other aromatic kind of elements. 
Yeah, we lose a lot of monoterpenes in the wash process and in the drying process. I mean, there there are companies that I know of that that are uh, extracting the terpenes from the water out of the back of the freeze dryer, and then using that to wet down their their products or do mixes or all kinds of different things, um, adding it back to THCA and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that's I mean that's why there are there are people who really like BHO for that reason because it does hit it does hit different. Um, when you're not getting actual BHO also, but I mean, like you get those monoterpenes and BHO that you don't get in, in, um, in water hash, you know, for Groli in Michigan is known for like his lime skunk work and a lot of citrusy stuff that comes through really well. Uh, I think he also has some Clementine and, and other BHO that people rave about there. And he does it really clean and has like zero part per million in his testing after it's all done and everything like that. So there are people that do it right with good material. He grows his own and processes his own. So uh, I've only heard good stuff about him and I've had a couple good things out here in the BHO side of the market, but I do typically prefer the uh, hash side of things, even though it tends to be a lot more expensive, the yields and returns are a lot lower. And just a quick thing I found on where's weed for the people out there. Um, Cause I needed a refresher on this too, because I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Five to six star, they categorize as full melt hash. So like when you smoke it, like he was talking about, some people will talk about the screen, weighing the screen. You put it on a metal screen and smoke it. If it melts all the way through, that's usually a good sign that it's five or six star versus like three to four star. They're saying is sometimes called half melt, where when you smoke the stuff on a bowl or whatever, or on a screen, you're going to have some sort of like charred material left over. So it's either lipids or plant material. Like if I wash my stuff too long and I look at it with a microscope, I'll see tiny little bits of like leaf tips from if I do trim run, especially. Um, and they're really microscopic, like grain of sand size, little pieces of like dark green material. And uh, Frenchy Cannoli was a big advocate for using almost like a pressure wash water. And you see a lot of people now with like hoses when they run it through the bag. And that is actually your resin is about, let's say 90 microns. And then they're blowing that water through trying to push the smaller stuff that is contaminants through. So if there's dust or other plant particles and things like that, it actually helps clean it up in that process. But I'm curious, Matthew, if you've um, tried dry sifting at all, because I used to do a lot of uh, water hash myself, but I've gone more to the dry sift side of things, even though it's even less yield, I feel it can get more of the full terpene and aromatic profile. With cured material or with live material? I've only really tried um, with cured material because the live material is so sticky. I I once tried to um, do the, what's it called when you, charas. I tried to make charas with my live material and Uh, you need, at least from my not like experience with it, a lot more than an indoor small home grow to do that. I think it's more like, you know, in India, they're walking up the mountain and collecting it while there's like dew in the morning. (laughs) The best hundred plants and they just ghost their hand over it one time. I was like, basically ripping my plant, like jerking my plant off up and down, trying to strip the resin off and like barely got the tiniest little fucking chara. So I, I wasted a few stocks trying to make a chara at home and realized that wasn't the method for me. But dry sifting uh, cured material seems to work pretty well. Even if like you just have like a trim bin, a lot of people have like that 150 uh, micron. And if you clean that up a little bit, there's like the paint roller technique where you put a little parchment paper around a paint roller and get all static and yep. you have your mess over here yep. and then the good stuff over there and then you brush it off. That can get pretty close to like what some would call like 99% just clean heads. And at that point, I'd say you're close to that six star, if not five star hash. Yeah, I uh, uh, my the first hash I ever made was on a screen um, from cured material. And yeah, we just used to make like little keith blocks i never pressed any of it because i wasn't making rosin back in that that time period um and i i think it's a great way to uh 
to purpose your your trim especially like uh for a smaller grow just like utilize every little thing if you don't feel like washing it and don't want to have to try to i mean having a freeze dryer is a pretty big barrier to doing um live rosin uh so you know if you trimming up your buds and you wanted to just sift it i think that's a great way to do it um sift as like a sift rosin hasn't really done well in the market um i know that there are, are producers that make a good amount of cured um cured hash i just don't know who they sell it to um um so yeah i think it's a good i think it's a great way to make a great way to make cured hash one thing that's kind of like an obscure reference but if anybody out there works with people that are overcoming addiction like i've worked with people that got over heroin use by using cannabis and one of the almost relapse or difficult times was i was a big bubble hash guy and i guess i didn't know this as i've never used black tar heroin but like the way that black tar heroin is smoked i guess some of the textures and like bubbling melting nature and, and smoking nature of it were similar so dry sift was much better for that person because it didn't evoke sort of the same texture and then uh smoked reaction so it was just kind of a unique random thing and, and part of the reason for Ooh. certain people that i work with that i went more towards the dry sift side of things and then ended up secondarily realizing like oh i'm actually getting more similar to like my turf profile of my cured flower um definitely not like the live plant i think the fresh frozen uh, in my experience, like washed uh, stuff that's made into rosin can almost smell just like the live plant or BHO can be really close to like that live plant smell. But um, as far as like getting close to the cured bud smell, I think that the dry sift is a little bit more similar and, and naturally, I guess it would make some sense because it's just coming off of the buds. And a lot of people think that we're just resin farmers, but I always seem to go back to flower. I don't know if you still smoke flower at all. A lot of concentrate people move to concentrate only. Um, do you still like smoke joints or bowls or anything like that or you just all concentrate once in once in a while i'll smoke a, a joint usually like a hash hole um I'll, I'll i'll consume one of those once in a while um but on the daily basis now i don't i don't smoke much flour and it's just mostly because i don't have it <laughs> i have i have live rosin um so I, I i tend to tend to smoke that more um i used to smoke a lot of joints and I think as I got older, I definitely started to feel the effects of smoking those a lot. Um, so that's that's one one reason too. I think I, I definitely feel like I have a heavy chest when I smoke a joint, um, but I don't get that from dabbing. Um, so yeah, I enjoy flour very much, and I, I I like to I like to look at it. I like to I like to experience different flour that I haven't experienced. Um, but as a daily, like a utilitarian type of stoner that I am, I just, I tend to smoke what's, what's directly around me. I respect that. And I think a lot of people for health reasons go more towards the concentrate or even edible side of things. Um, RSO is another one that I think a lot of people can consume and get their sort of cannabis fix or need to uh, medication in, in that way without having to smoke it. And I think, concentrate typically is considered vaporization anyway it's not uh, a smoke so it I, I would say even doctors for the most part would be more on the front of people being you know more into using concentrates or, or vaporizing although i will say cautionary don't take real hot dabs like i used to back in the early dab days like fucking 900 degrees off a of titanium nail with like you know that stuff actually gets like if you look into what some of these terpenes turn into at those temperatures like actually not good for you so um and i think that's why some of the younger crowd that i, I have run with for a little while they, they like to take these real big giant one gram hot ass dabs and uh i hear them coughing like they're like a 40 year old 
cigarette smoker sometimes. And I'm like, Dude, like <laughs> I what the can fuck? Like agree this with is, that. I have also experienced that. This is not the uh the healthy thing that it yeah. once was when it was just that plant, you know. But mm-hmm. on your side, I think you know, growing it how you're growing it, uh processing it how you're processing it, you're and even consuming it how you're consuming it, it it's a different thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, we used to do the the red hot knives on the, you know, you know, with bubble hash and just like kind of choke it out and take a knee if you had to. I saw lots, lots of people pass out doing that shit. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, smoke off crystal, folks. Just smoke, smoke on a crystal, nice crystal. You can get some cheap crystal out there. I don't mean crystal meth. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, smoke on nice, clean crystal or quartz rather quartz is what I mean to say. Use quartz and uh, you can buy some, you know, fairly affordable stuff. And just, you know, once it gets charred and all weird at the bottom from overheating it, and letting it cool, just buy and buy a new one, buy a fresh one, yeah. you know, titanium, titanium is bad, a bad move for a lot of reasons, I think. Oh yeah, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm happy that I've since moved away from that. I thought that's what you were going to say at the beginning when you're like, I take dabs and uh, I might get some shit for this. And I was like, oh God, if he says titanium nail. But... <laughs> no. Well, and no, then no. the <laughs> other thing we never, I've never finished up the little review of the star rating system. They say on the low end, a one to two star hash is the least refined. There's lots of leftover plant materials. In some cases, it may be as much as 50% plant material. And like, if you've ever made hash yourself and went with like the Jorge Cervantes method, where he's like, all right, throw it all in there and put on a power drill for 20 minutes and then come back. And if you did that, you'll probably have some of this like food grade material where it's like completely green and doesn't look like any hash that you've ever seen before. It's probably like mostly actually plant material. So 50% or more one to two star hash. That's what that is. It's not going to melt. It might not even burn. You try to like put a lighter to it and it like turns into this kind of like charcoal-y looking nasty thing. It's not going to taste very good, but it will make decent edibles. So that is uh, yeah. one consideration. You can throw it into some edibles. It might not taste great, but they'll probably get you good and high still. So everything has its use and that's sort of the... Uh, quick and dirty overview of the star system as as much as it might not be perfect uh, a lot of people reference yeah, I mean, it. it's, it's it's what we have i guess it's what we have i guess i maybe i was a little hard on it in the beginning but um it's very subjective i think is the big issue with it um i think you're know, rightfully big, harsh it's problem. unscientific yeah. in a field yeah, that we're trying it's to get very more unscientific scientific i just don't want to upset anybody who loves the six star system <laughs> they're passionate my stuff's all six star and i won't <laughs> yeah, be told any different exactly. yeah the, the other thing is isn't is this kind of like i mean uh, this is kind of like a Michelin star system is what's sort of uh, aping, right? Are, are we in agreement to that? Or is that not the case? Because that's always the impression. I think it's I a have. little different because at least this, like when I went through that last thing, there's a physical quality, like the the melt versus half melt versus no melt. Um, you could say at least there's like a physical indication. And Frenchie cannoli. Well, where did the terminology come from? I hate to speculate. Star but like, ratings. But yes. I think that's actually different than Michelin stars, Matthew. But yeah, it's star rating. Like, it's weird that it's not five stars, stars though. Or three stars, like a Michelin restaurant would be the top. And then two. Michelin star is funny because it's like Michelin, like the tire company. A lot of people don't know this. It means one star. Right. I would drive there because yeah. it's good. Two stars, like I'm going to go really yeah. far out of my way. Three stars is like, I'm going to make a vacation. Yeah. yeah, one star really- would be amazing. And that's right. kind of right. what I was it's alluding right. to. Is like Most restaurants don't yeah. have. That's a good point. Yeah, it, was so actually good. A guide, it was actually a guide that was put together by the Michelin company. Right. Um, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Well, but and- uh, I, guess, I guess it's like uh, you can still be really good without having a singular one but here it seems like it's more like a rating like uh you know i give this movie one star maybe it's more like that it's it's sort of like that but 
Frenchy cannoli, I think, rest It's not just a qualitative rating, right? It's not just sort of impressionistic. It's based on some physical criteria is what you're saying, Jack, right? Yeah, so the melt is the primary thing. And going to a little bit more advanced scoring system, we interviewed him. Uh, our former host of the Cheap Home Grow interviewed Frenchy cannoli, and we talked a little bit about... Oh, cool. He has this... Um, and he came on here on this actual show, Growing with My Fellow Growers, cool. one of the episodes. That's really neat. We all got to chat with him and hang out. He's a great dude. Brandon, I think, met yeah. him in person. Uh, one of my buddies is taking a sash class, but great guy. But something I think that he did that is sort of a service to the community. It's not perfect because there is some sort of like esoteric and out there kind of more spiritual stuff. Was he made this way to evaluate hash called scoring for quality. And there are, uh, here are the categories, appearance body, bouquet, or aroma, that's the same category, complexity slash balance, intensity slash duration, and then melt is in bold, because I should probably be sharing this on my screen, but my, for whatever reason, Google Chrome has crashed and not letting me pull anything up, so I could, just doing it on my phone right now, but the values for those first categories, uh, and I'll go over them, again, appearance, body, bouquet, complexity, and intensity, those are all 10 points, so, you know, it's like out of 10, a 1 through 10, you rate it 1 through 10. But then melt, he gives a higher weight because just like the uh, star rating scale, he yeah. felt that melt is a huge importance of the hash quality. So instead of getting 10 points for melt, you rate it one through 10, but then you multiply that by five. So it's five times more important in his opinion for the total score. So if your stuff has a certain smell, a certain, certain intensity, a certain duration, it gets you know a max of 10 points for the smell, a max of 10 points for duration, a max of however many. And if it melts perfectly, it'll get 50 points in the melt category. And then there's a couple more smoothness, uh, stability, taste, uniqueness slash overall pleasure. And then the last part he added more recently was lab results, cannabinoid quantity, cannabinoid spectrum, and terpene content. And those were uh, 20. So they were just... Uh, multiplied by two. So you rate them one through 10 and whatever that score was, it'd be multiplied by two. And granted, it's not like perfect because again, it's like a subjective one through 10 scale. But I think uh, if you started yeah. to get more sp specific, like, okay, cannabinoids would be above 50% gets a right. eight, above 60% gets a nine, above 65% gets a 10 or something like that. And then mm -hmm. terpene content would be like 10% is a 10 and like whatever, however you want to go about doing it. But at least this gives you a score total out of 200 across all those categories to give you more of like a, an average as opposed to saying, oh, this shit's really good, which is this shit a lot of is people's, fire. This shit's the fire. This is the dankest thing. What we ultimately care about is the qualitative experience of, of using the hash and sort of what it does to us and how it makes us feel and how we enjoy it and maybe how we see it, how we interact with it. But like, that's what really matters is the qualitative experience. So I'm almost more tempted to just say we should keep with a qualitative scale. Um, you know, doing a, a, a rubric like that and then creating multipliers and all of this, it can sound good in theory and then produce scores that don't align with kind of your actual experience which ones you prefer like well that one gets a higher score but i actually prefer this other one i'd rather well, know which ones we that can... scale was even to what he prefers like yeah melt is the yeah. highest thing. and i would cross out uniqueness like how do you how do you do that yeah well, what's the, the, what's the three level you not gonna matter to everybody 100 subjective it's 100 your experience interpreted through your lens and, then and that's what we want i want something that, that like speaks to my experience and what i want well, and right? some people yeah, care yeah, more about how it looks the bag score. appeal 
we eat with our eyes first. People take a picture of their plate before they, you know, eat it at a fancy restaurant or even yeah. fucking Chipotle, wherever they go, who knows? Um, but like, and the and smell of it, are honest the with breaking it up, the that. feel of it, the experience. So like everybody has a different thing that's important to them. For me as a medical person, I'm like, doc, I think the experience should trump all. Um, I don't care if it melts terribly. See, if like I get how many a medical, calories and how many yeah. grams of fat are in the food sometimes ruins the experience, right? Like getting too much knowledge about like the, the technical details sometimes can really take away, I think, from some other aspects of it. I feel the same way about cannabis testing sometimes. Like if I really like a strain, I don't even want to know what, what it tests at because all that could do is sort of make me think lesser of it. Um, oh man, Bu buying by THC percentage has been yeah. a, a, a very negative effect of the consumer having access to this information. Which well, and they with the growers growing the market. It, of course, but... Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's it's caused just a clusterfuck of cookies on cookies yes. on OG. gelato on. It's just like a this has become a really unfortunate scene in and, that regard. And, of, and I would argue the skunky strain and terpenes that that we always ask about have kind of been thrust to the side sometimes in the in the pursuit of higher THC numbers. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I want to give uh, Brandon 100%. Russ a shout out. He had to cut out to go to a family dinner event. So cheers to Brandon Russ. Right you can up. find his stuff at BokashiEarthworks.com. Great dude uh, at Brandon Russ on social or Russ.Brandon on social medias. Check him out for sure. And at this point in the show, uh, I typically pass it over to Spartan Grown because he's got to actually cut out and go over to another two hour long episode just like this of the Michigan Bros Grow Show with uh, some awesome dudes over there in Michigan. So Spartan, any final thoughts and shout outs? Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, Jack. And, uh, you know, shout out to Matthew first and foremost for coming out and sharing his experience, but uh, kind of on that same vein with it's kind of, you know, commercial level uh, you know, this is, that's large scale uh, farming that's going on right there. And um, I know that we have a lot of people that listen to this show that are also in the commercial scene. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, we've lost another person in the commercial scene. This is now the second death that I've personally heard of. That's right. And this it, both for the same kind of similar reasons. This was an elderly lady who had COPD, so she already had breathing issues to begin with, and she was in the room where they were packing the joints, and that was what happened with the first person too. It was there's so much particulate in the air in those rooms, and uh, I think in both cases, neither one was wearing a mask. Whether you know, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. I don't care who is supposed to supply the mask go grab one for yourself and wear the mask i mean if it's, it's it could be your life that we're talking about so please if you're working in the industry and you're working in these areas especially pre-roll areas like that please please wear a mask <laughs> other than that you know i just want to say you know everyone just uh, it's important i think to if you, when we're fighting for rights and things like that is to protect home grow above ev everything and everything you know because if we're all can at least have the ability to grow at home who cares what happens on the commercial side let, let them do whatever they want to do as long as we can grow our own we win so keep growing <laughs> love you guys I like that. oh yes martin cheers always great to have spartan on uh just great advocate for the plant great grower and uh i love that he's you know, taking a little bit to the political side of things and really pushing for what he feels and, and believes in. And that is a good message. A lot of people, myself included, I'm always skeptical whenever I hear anything negative about cannabis. I'll admit it. When I hear somebody dies 
in a cannabis workplace, my thought is, okay, how do they actually die? How are they pinning this on cannabis? But when there is stuff like that, you know, particulate matter in the air, air quality is a real thing. Um, PPE weather. It's a pretty significant pre-existing condition though too. Um, Right. Yeah. Is this a new one? The one lady at the Cresco said that she didn't have a pre-existing condition or the family is claiming that there wasn't a pre-existing condition for the younger woman in the Cresco labs case. And so I looked into that the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Then I saw it again. I saw it again. And I, the, one of the regulatory agencies of the U.S. I can't remember exactly which one is responsible for workplace OSHA. OSHA. I think it's OSHA evaluated this pretty extensively and did come to that conclusion. And not to say that a government agency is like 100% come to the right conclusions on everything, but um, from I, I like to really dig into the science and look into it, and that did seem like what happened. Yeah, claimed a the claimed story seems at least from what I have seen and presented i looked at i tried to look at it it as skeptically as possible but i still come to the same conclusion that osha found in that case where it is likely or very possible that the death was caused by working in that environment and you know inhaling enough particulate matter that it caused certain respiratory issues that led to the demise of that individual and it's tragic and um people i will say this die in every industry like all the time whether it's like a random heart attack on the job but we should be protecting people for these things like it is important that we do like spartan said even if you're not provided a mask if you start to feel like oh my lungs aren't feeling good i'm not breathing like she was reporting a lot of this stuff Uh, maybe i hate to say it like in a tough economy like quit your job and find something else that is an option we're human beings we have freedoms so sometimes you got to vote with your feet but if you can't do that for whatever reason in the moment like you have kids you have a family of bills all that other stuff to pay uh don the mask i know people will talk shit and throw signs at you and say it's going to do this this or that but like find one that works for you that can protect you and uh, give you safety in your workplace because everybody I, I believe deserves to be safe and healthy in their environment where they work and live absolutely uh, yeah it, it should be a basic thing at this point but unfortunately it's not the case in even in california or all of the 50 states as much as i'd like to think we're great we still have a lot of stuff that we can work on yeah yeah there are dangers in every industry but it's the the owners of those businesses and the industry itself the regulators they need to find ways to minimize those risks and those dangers. Um, and yeah, yeah we, it's important that if you're a worker in the industry that you're aware of it. But I hadn't really thought about that prior either in terms of that being a, a potential danger. I could certainly see how it could be. I didn't as much either. But when I think of when I reflect on it a little bit, I feel like similar to Dr. Coco here that like the onus is definitely on the company for providing PPE for all kinds of other things. Yeah. And, you know, dust or like an industry where dust inhalation and things like this, the botanical material is already a known problem. Come on. We, you know, I mean, tobacco, all kinds of other stuff, and even things that are not organic. Like we already know that breathing that in is not great. Obviously COPD is also not great, but like, you don't know, you're not walking. Around. I had this conversation multiple times uh, in the past where it's like, you don't know you're walking around. You don't have your like, oh, am I sensitive to this meter? Let me just, you know, put it on my skin and see if I'm going to have an acute or a chronic reaction today or after 25 years, 30 years, 50 years of your life, you know, it adds up. And uh, yeah. So anyways, I, I also want to echo that sentiment, like be safe, but also like, you know, demand better of people who are put in positions to regulate that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I don't know why it wouldn't be mandatory that everybody wears a mask that fits their face properly. 
Um, right. You know, if, if not a custom respirator and, you know, people shouldn't have beards and, you know, all these things should be enforced. Um, I, I don't, and then also I wonder why machinery is being used inside of a closed space that doesn't somehow control the amount of particulate that goes into the room. I don't know if that's just beyond the limitations that's of science, point. but, but um, I'm wondering yeah. why, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, take a generator into a, into a uh, room and burn the generator because you yeah, know uh, carbon monoxide build up and you know and so like that makes sense but like so why why would you be running a machine that creates some sort of a uh, an unlivable environment and not have some sort of a filter you know it just seems like common sense that there would be and is this are we talking is this a recent a new recent one i remember there was a true leave death. yes sir is this that's right is that this is, is just a follow-up a second this one is, this is older fresh, woman yeah this is a new true leave death no, no, a different or, organization, but okay, yes, okay, a new okay. death. Okay, got you, got you. I believe, yeah. yeah. And this kind of relates back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of regulation, right? It's actually society's responsibility, and, and usually it's some government agency that acts in society's interest on this trap to make sure that industries are safe. Industries following the free market, their responsibility is to make money. And if you're an industry that voluntarily starts doing things that you don't have to do that cost money, then you end up usually going out of business in these yeah. cases. Really up to society to make sure that industries operate in ways that don't kill their workers. Otherwise, mm -hmm. history is full of examples of industries that operated in such a way that just killed their workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Somewhere in modern excellence. times, they have incentivized if you pay your workers well and you give them like good health insurance and, and good things around the office, that they're happier workers and they're more productive workers. Like this guy, he had his company and he said the minimum wage is $70,000 a year because he found out that that was the amount that people were like happily living on. So he made the minimum wage at his thing, the happy living wage. And then he ended up making way more money that year and the following year. So his company, as a result of treating his employees better, actually thrived as opposed to going out of business, even in a difficult somewhat free market. Are, yeah, businesses can make their niche that, but generally at scale, like not every business can follow that path. And I agree. Like running an extra filter in your trim room, yeah. because if, if the 10 companies that aren't doing it and are paying their employees minimum wage or are even like taking or advantage of agricultural regulations that ship employees. people in from different countries or different parts of the country that are here without documentation, but still allow them to work. Uh, things like that happen in California for not just cannabis agriculture, but all agriculture. And a lot of it doesn't get talked about. So I think it's important that we highlight it's not just cannabis that's Absolutely. got issues, but also uh, these things do happen in cannabis uh, from like the Chinese types. often have respiratory illnesses and, and develop other chronic problems through time for exposure to particulate or pesticides or other things like that. So, Yeah, and we're starting to see the kind of uh, people get a little bit of payback with that. The Roundup lawsuits, big multi-million dollar lawsuits going against Monsanto, which was for a long time like winning all these lawsuits and, and saying that it wasn't causing what it is causing. Uh, now starting to see hundreds of millions of dollars being paid out and some families getting some retribution, but obviously many, many more are impacted that don't get any payouts. Um, I saw one of my families here in California spraying Roundup on their weeds the other day. I go, are you really spraying Roundup? Like, I was shocked when I saw it. It's a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like you said, people just don't know or they don't care because they don't what understand did I say? Like, the acute. It's cheaper yeah. than the other ways of doing it. And that's why, you know, people often have to make the, the economical decision. 
And, and so when there's a cheaper option, even if it's a dangerous option, people often don't have the luxury of sort of making the more expensive, safer option. Yeah, well, and they're like the dangerous option, also the most cheap option. It's not a great move. <laughs> they, they could say 90% of people who use Roundup will get cancer. And then like a certain percentage of people, probably even like people like myself will be like, maybe I'll just be part of that 10%, you know? Like maybe I'll be part of that percent. That like you can good. choose. Yeah, I'm resilient. It's, it's... I'm resilient. I'm healthy. Otherwise I, I exercise, I, I eat right. The Roundup's not going to get me, you know? But That's realistically, a positivity it's, like, bias. <laughs> it's a genetic dice roll. Some people are more exposed based on, you know, their environmental settings and their genetic backgrounds and things like that. But at this point, we've got about five minutes left in the show. And this is usually when I go around the horn and let the uh, panelists do their final thoughts and shout outs. I'll pass it first to Dr. MJ this evening. I, you know, Matthew, it was such, and Matthew, shock out, shock out, shock out. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. It's just such a pleasure. I really enjoyed having you on, getting your insight. It was, it was wonderful. So thank you very much for sharing sort of your experience, your stories, all your knowledge, um, your, your passion for the plant and really sort of your thoughtfulness about how you approach it comes across really clearly and I, I think everybody benefited from listening to the show today so i'll just do my shout out that i'm, I'm dr mj coco and i enjoyed this show thank you yeah well, thank you doc for sure and then uh last of our panelists this evening of the regulars is matthew gates yeah i just want to echo great questions great conversation uh not just on hash but also i think like we always do we get a little bit into the technical details and in this case i think we talked some cool philosophy of uh of business and that kind of thing but yeah if you guys are interested Pestapalooza, very excited to see people in southern california you can meet me and dr coco on san diego at mighty hydro tickets are on sale Pestapalooza link will be in chat also LA, if you're in the LA area, or close to it, uh, the next day on the 30th, the so 29th, 30th. And uh, great talk. Thanks a lot for coming on, Matt. And thank with that you. said, our special guest of this evening, Matthew, thank you so much to Catalan Smoke for linking us up. I'm really happy that they did. Oftentimes, I actually refuse guests, believe it or not, probably the last 10 who've reached out for one reason or another. It seemed a lot more manufactured and product placement type setups. And this felt a lot more organic, like you're actually one of us, you're a grower, and you've gone on to sort of live that dream that a lot of people aspire to or are currently pursuing. So we were very happy to have you on the show and kind of explain your pathway, how you got there, and uh, just talk shop with us for a little while. So thank you so much. And uh, any final thoughts and shout outs for you this evening? Um, no, I, you know, I, pr I appreciate all the kind words. Uh, this again, this was kind of a, a um, my my good uh, childhood friend was uh sort of through this my direction i thought wow that'd be great and it's been really fun chatting with you guys i i always say i can chat with cannabis people for hours and that's today has been no exception exception to that i just would say yeah you know you hit on something there i am uh, just a guy who liked smoking weed that i grew and that's what all this began out of um i just wanted to smoke weed that i grew and it became um a hobby and then a career um, and while I wouldn't necessarily tell people these days to get into cannabis and definitely not California commercial cannabis, I would still say if you're passionate about the plant, um, you know, if you like watching those, the, watching the wind go through the leaves and you could, you could sit there and spend hours just looking at your plants, whether it's indoors or out, I would say stick with it. And I really liked, um, I liked um, the other uh, panelists comments about the home grow. I think that there's nothing more powerful that a, that a cannabis user can do than grow their own cannabis. Um, I know that that kind of 
you know, might not sell cannabis for me, but I think that the more important message is there, you know? Um, so yeah, so thank you guys. Um, you know, people can uh, reach out to me at, at, at Matt Shackow on Instagram or um, shackow.humble uh, on Instagram and um, check out, check out what I'm working on. And, um, and yeah, thank you guys. Thank you very much for some nice conversation. It was really a pleasure having you. And uh, to be honest, if you'd like to come back in the future, give an update, maybe in a month or a few months or whenever, we'd sure. be happy to have you back on in the future to uh, you know check back in with you because it was it was great chatting with you. We like your philosophy and you were definitely a natural on the panel, fit right in with all of us. And uh, I think it was a great time for everybody. And uh, if anybody's looking for my stuff, I'm sure you all know where to find me already at Jack Greenstock on Instagram, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And uh, my book, 50 Strains of Green, is available on 50strains.com. I'm about to drop five packs of the Velvet Punch. Right now, there's currently only 11 packs available, regular seeds for people in the U.S. only. But uh, the five packs will be on the website soon this week. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I've got a few episodes banked for anybody listening live on the YouTube. You probably don't care too much about this unless you listen to the podcast platform and you're like, Jack, where the hell are those last few episodes? We're only on like 222 on the podcast right now. And this is 224. So I think I've got like two or three more to upload. And um, I try not to upload them like one after another because then, you know, people get overwhelmed. So I'm, I'm spacing them out a little bit and they'll be released over the next few weeks. So with that said, at Jack Greenstock signing out. Thank you all so much for coming panel. Uh, everybody, uh, the guests, Matthew, this evening, and all the listeners, both live and afterwards, we much appreciate you, and we'll catch you all next time. Grow our love, everyone. Take care. Stay terpy. <laughs>